Romans chapter 4, with Father's Day and the Supreme Court ruling last the last two weeks, we've had a lot of chance to apply our creation and culture um, summer series. But this morning, we're going to be ter- returning to the book of, of Romans. And we're going to be looking at a topic today that, that at first glance may not seem uh, as important as you would, would give it credit as you sit there and listen to Paul read to us the passage in Romans 4 verses 9 through 12 about circumcision and uncircumcision and before circumcision or after circumcision and you're sitting there thinking, what in the world does that have to do with me? sitting here this morning on 4th of July weekend as a Gentile Christian. Well, it has a lot more to do than you might think. Steve Lawson said, Religion without regeneration is monstrous. And there's a lot of religion in the world, and that religion involves a lot of ceremony, which is what Paul is going to talk to us about this morning. Religious zeal without true conversion, produces some of the most evil people on the, on the planet. From Muslim terrorists to Catholic zealots to the Hindu mobs in, in India, people who believe that they're right with God because of what they do outwardly or some ceremony they perform, but they don't have the Spirit of God in them, uh, inwardly to mediate or control their evil hearts. And those type of people have perpetrated some of the grossest wickedness that has ever been known. You, you can look at a number of places, the Spanish Inquisition or ISIS, or look no farther than the Catholic Church before and during the Protestant Reformation. When we left uh, Apostle Paul last time, he was using the Old Testament as an evidence for the gospel that he preaches, which is why he's talking about Abraham and circumcision this morning. And he's told us that salvation has always been by by faith alone, and he's been developing that argument point by point. We're in part three of Paul's letter, where he's laying out this exclusive solution to mankind's sinfulness, and that's that's found in in the gospel, the good news that God himself is the one who provides righteousness, and he provides that on the, the, the means of, of faith alone. And as he writes, Paul is well aware that there are people who would be reading this letter, not just in his day, but, but down through the centuries, that have a, some level of resistance to, to his gospel. He proclaimed it all over Asia. He's already been through his three missionary journeys, and he has felt this resistance as it as it has to do with, with faith alone and the exclusion of ceremonies or anything other than, other than faith. Paul particularly felt that when he was witnessing to Jewish people. And so he's turned to the Old Testament to prove his case. And so after this long, detailed look at human sin in chapter 1 that went through the beginning of chapter 3, Paul declares the glorious hope of the gospel. He does that in great detail. And then he says that news, that good news is available to all people. It's available to both Jew and and Gentile. That God has always provided righteousness by a gracious gift. And human beings have always received that by faith alone. Regardless of the time period, regardless of their ethnic background, before the law of Moses, after the law of Moses, before Christ, after Christ, it's always been this specific 
way. And to prove this, the Apostle Paul calls Abraham and David as a witness. He calls them to the witness stand in chapter 4. And who better to call, right? Abraham was the father of Judaism, and he was saved by faith alone. And David, the greatest king of Israel, was blessed with the forgiveness of sin through the same means, by his, by his faith. And they both testify to, to Paul's gospel. That's the context of all of chapter 4. And, and his argument goes a little bit like, like this to the skeptics. So, oh, okay, you, you have questions about my gospel that, that's exclusively by, by faith. Faith plus or, or minus nothing. Would, would you at least agree that if you're going to be saved, you're going to be saved the same way that, that Abraham was saved? Would, would you at least uh, agree to that? And of course, every Jew would say, well, yeah. I mean, Abraham is, is our father. He's the, the great patriarch of, of, of Judaism. And Paul's response to that would then be, well, do you realize that that Abraham was saved by the very gospel that, that I preach, that he was declared righteous by God, by, by his faith uh, uh, alone. And that's what he covers in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. And so some Jews would process that, or religious people would process that, and say, well, uh, okay, yes, faith is necessary. I'll give you that, Paul. I mean, I can find faith in the Old Testament. I can find it in the, in the Bible. Faith is necessary. But so are, and you can fill in the blank, so are the, the ceremonies that God gave to us. We're to perform those as well, like circumcision. Abraham was told to circumcise every male child, and, and that if, if they didn't or they refused to do that, they were to be cut off from, from God's people, pun probably intended. God requires you to have faith in Him, Paul, but... But he also requires you to perform some other things yourself. And so faith is required, but, but so are the ceremonies. And the Apostle Paul then responds to that in verses 9 through 12 that, that was read for us this morning. Paul basically says, are you, are you sure about that? <laughs> Let's go to the Scriptures and find out, because that's our only authority, not not Baptist history or Jewish history or anything else. What does the Bible say? What does God say uh, about that? And so in verses 9 through 12, Paul lays out clearly that salvation does not include circumcision. Or as Rick Holland titled his sermon on this passage, salvation is not by surgery. That's for sure. In fact, religious ceremonies have no part in your salvation whatsoever. But that's not what many people believe even today. If you were sitting this morning, which you're not, thankfully, if you were sitting this morning in a church of Christ, they would tell you if you wanted to be saved, you need to believe, and then you need to be baptized in Jesus' name. And if you came forward, they would put you in the water immediately as a requirement of, of salvation. Many Catholics are meeting this very morning, and, and as they do, they're, they're performing the Mass, the the priest is doing that as a means of, of salvation, meaning it's required as his baptism, as his confirmation and confession, and three others, three other sacraments. There's seven ways in the, the Catholic faith that you participate in becoming righteous before God. And all of those are, are accompanied with faith. You have to have faith. It's just not 
faith uh, alone. If you're in a Mormon gathering, you, you would hear that salvation comes by grace and works. Uh, quoting now from, from Mormon teaching, we must do our part. Does that sound familiar? We must do our part, which consists of both continuous efforts for improvement and proper repentance. Proper repentance meaning their system of works. The Seventh-day Adventists require you to keep the Sabbath, which is Saturday, among a number of other things. The Jehovah's Witness require absolute devotion and obedience to the Watchtower Society and its governing bodies. I could go on. But what does the Bible say? Are, are, are signs or ceremonies required for salvation? Are they involved in some way? And, and if not, what part do they play? Well, that's what verses 9 through 12 deals with. Verses 13 through 20, which we'll get to next week, Lord willing, talks about the role of the law. What is the role of the law in a Christian's life? Paul looks at them one at a time, and we will as well. Let me show you the structure of verses 9 through 12. It's, it's not difficult to, to understand, even though it, it may seem confusing as you, you, you read it. In verse 9, he asks the question of who is included in this, this blessing of, of forgiveness. Is the blessing, what blessing? The blessing that he just got done talking about, that David quoted. Is that on the circumcised or the uncircumcised? Is it Jews only or Gentiles as well, Paul, that, that's included in, in this gospel? And then Paul answers that question by pointing us back to Abraham. He, he says, For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. And then he asks a, a follow-up question. Uh, what condition was Abraham in whenever that that statement took place, in circumcision or uncircumcised? And then in verse 11, Paul explains the, the personal purpose of, of a ceremony. Uh, how, how then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And here's verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision and the seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised, and then he rounds it out by telling us that why God designed it that way. What was, his, what was his purpose? So that he, that's Abraham, might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them, and, here's the other reason, that the father, he would become the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, that's Jews, but who follow in the footsteps of the faith of Father Abraham, which he had while he was uncircumcised. So Paul says that the faith of Abraham definitively teaches us how we're saved. It was by faith alone. The timing of Abraham's salvation teaches us who can be saved. It's, it's both Jew and Gentile since his righteousness was, came to him prior to circumcision. And then the way of salvation teaches us that Abraham is the father of all who follow in his footsteps, those who come to God the exact same way, by faith alone. We'll call it three reasons salvation does not include ceremony. Three reasons salvation does not include ceremony. Number one, it's because the, the credit of righteousness comes at faith. 
That's in verses 9 and 10. Number two, the, the ceremonies that represent it come after faith. You practice these things after you express faith in Christ. And number three, the confirmation of Abraham as our spiritual father comes through faith, following in his example in verses 11 and 12. At faith, after faith, and through faith. There's the credit, there's the ceremonies themselves, and then there's the the confirmation. I'll show you these one at a time. The first reason salvation does not include ceremony is the credit of righteousness comes at the expression of faith. When does God declare you righteous before Him? Well, the Bible says, just like Abraham, it's at the expression of your personal faith in in God and in His work that He provided through His Son. And and Paul begins here by... This is by showing this is proven in this important question, and then he gives an irrefutable answer. Look, if you would, at verse 9. Here's the question, the first of two. Is this blessing, then, on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. But Paul begins by asking a follow-up question to King David's testimony. You recall that, that he added him as a witness to... To, to the fact that God credits righteousness apart from works, and he quotes Psalm 32. We looked at Psalm 32 in detail. David says in verse 8, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not take into account. Now he asks, is this blessing for circumcised people also? And was David just talking about Jews whenever he wrote Psalm 32? Or is it for uncircumcised people as well? Is it for Gentiles too? The whole world? or just the Jewish people? And a Jew would answer, well, well, yes, of course he's talking about both Jew and Gentile. That wasn't the problem. Forgiveness is available to Gentiles as well. You could stop a, a Jewish person on the street today, and, and they would tell you that, of course, salvation. God is the, there's only one God. He's the God of all people. In fact, in Judaism, Abraham is considered the very first Gentile to come to faith in Yahweh. Abraham was a Gentile from the land of Ur in Genesis 12, 1. I mean, that's the whole point of the calling. He's called out of a land to a land that God will, will, will show him. Leave everything that you know, Abraham. So Abraham left his country, Abraham left his family, and Abraham left his gods as well. Look at Joshua 24. And Joshua said to all people, obviously this is, this is even after Moses, so 500 years or so later, Genesis 12, then Genesis 12, Joshua is talking to the Israelites and he says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. This is the significance of Abraham's call. He was to leave everything behind and to follow this God who appeared to him, who spoke to him. But it's even more the, than a testimony to Abraham. It's an evidence of God's grace. I mean, God did not make a covenant with Abraham because he was a righteous seeker. He, he, but because God is a gracious supplier. 
I mean, he didn't choose Abraham because of his faithful life. He chose Abraham because of his electing grace. And Abraham would, would now be an example of, of how God does the same thing with, with you or with me or anybody else. To be a proselyte in Judaism is an honorable thing, and it's honorable because of Abraham. But this is the, uh, the, the issue is not, can a Gentile be saved? The, the question is, how are, they, how are they saved? Look, if you would, at verse, verse 10. Notice what, how Paul drills down here. For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Paul doesn't immediately answer the first question, because that's not the issue. He just restates what he established back in verse 4. He's setting them up, which was what the Bible says about how Abraham was saved. How was Abraham saved? Faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. He, he simply reminds them and us that the Old Testament speaks authoritatively on these matters. Abraham was saved by, by faith. And, and after establishing that, then he gives them the second question. Look at the rest of verse 10. How then was it credited? I mean, the Bible definitively says that, that it was faith that God looked upon and credited righteousness to Abraham. How then was that credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Um, before he performed the ceremony or after he performed the ceremony? When was he saved? Paul says... Uh, so, so what were the circumstances of Abraham's salvation? Was he in a state of circumcision or was he not? What was the timing? When did he get saved? If faith was reckoned or credited to his account by God as righteousness, when did God do that? Before he was a Jew or after he was a Jew? Before the ceremony or after it? And, and to get that answer in detail, you have to go back to Genesis 17. So I want you to turn back there for a minute. You can keep your place in Romans. We'll, we'll finish in Romans. We'll turn back to Genesis 17, because this is going to help you understand the rest of, of this passage. Genesis 17. This is the, the chapter where God brings all of His promises to a crescendo, and... This is in the time of, of Abraham. It, he gives new revelation right before Isaac is born. This is the chapter right before Sodom and Gomorrah, when God reveals himself to, to Abraham again. And, and just kind of trace it along for you. In Genesis chapter 12, God initiates the covenant. He calls Abraham out of the land, and Abraham goes. He leaves his God, and he follows this God who appears to him. Then God establishes the covenant in the first half of Genesis 15. We looked at Genesis 15. God appears to, to Abraham and he calls him to go outside, look at the stars, look up in the sky, try to count them if you can. You're going to have a son and it's not going to be your, your, your servant. The second half of Genesis 15, God ensures the covenant. He puts Abraham to sleep. God uh, makes a covenant, and God alone walks between the pieces of the covenant. And now, in Genesis 17, God confirms the covenant that he made back in Genesis 15. Now, now try to think the way Abraham would be thinking as you, as you engage in, in Genesis 17. Um, from the beginning, God has made clear to, to Abraham what he would do, but he's gradually unfolded it. 
He, he didn't give him everything in Genesis 12. He didn't give him everything in Genesis 15. He doesn't even give him everything right here in Genesis 17, but he, he gradually unfolds what he's going to do. It's been about 25 years. The rabbis say about 39 years since Abraham was called out of, of Ur, when Abraham left his land to this land that God was, was, was calling him. And in the meantime, about 25 years ago, about 13 years ago, Abraham tried plan B, right? You remember plan B? Sarah it produced Hagar, and uh, that was in Genesis 16. Ishmael was born, and this failure has left disunity and heartbreak, but it didn't eliminate God's promise to Abraham. So here is the Lord back again in Genesis 17. God hasn't spoken for a very long time, about 13 or 14 years. How would you like to go 13 or 14 years without hearing from the Lord? That would be a horrible thing, but that was Abraham's situation. The last time God spoke before uh, Genesis 17, he spoke to, to Hagar whenever Sarah ran her off. And she encountered the Lord on her way to Egypt. And the years were not wasted. Abraham got a taste of the consequences of trying to serve God on his own way and acting presumptuously, just like the Lord does for us sometimes. It also intensified the, the impossibility of Abraham and Sarah having a baby on, on their own, right? I mean, if they were old before, they're really old now. And in fact, this tells us that Abraham is 99 so if a child's going to be born now, it's surely going to be born by, by God. And it also served to show that neither Sarah nor Abraham are worthy covenant partners. I mean, as you walk through Genesis and you walk through Exodus, there's just a constant reminder, God is the one who's going to fulfill His promise. He's the one who's going to keep His covenant. And it's not going to be these human beings who keep lying and keep failing who keep getting drunk, who keep doing all of these other things. And here, once again, even after Abraham expresses faith and God credits righteousness to him, Abraham blows it again. And we're reminded that they're not very good covenant partners. God alone is sufficient. And so now the Lord appears to him once again. He begins to speak to, to Abraham. And it's very similar to chapter 12. Look at 17, verse 1. It says, now when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, and he said a lot more. God speaks five different times. Uh, the next 22 verses, God engages in the longest speech that, that he's given up to this point to, to Abraham. In fact, the majority of chapter 17 is God talking. Abraham says almost, almost nothing. He gives greater detail to the promise that he's already, he's already given Abraham. God speaks five different times in, in, this, in, in this chapter. Abraham only speaks twice. Once to himself, you, you'll, you'll find that if, if you had a personal encounter to God, you'll find talking to yourself at, at times. And, and then he briefly speaks to the Lord in verse 18. But that's saved to the end of the chapter. The second section of Genesis 17 is, begins in verse 23. So the first 22 verses is God, 
And then the last five verses records Abraham's response. So you have this introduction with this reference of time. He's 99 years, showing us that God hadn't talked for a long time. He comes back to Abraham again. God speaks for 22 verses, and then he goes up from Abraham, and then Abraham, he has an obedient response in the last five verses. And God begins with, with more revelation. He says, I am the Lord, I am God Almighty. That's new, new revelation. For the first time, God reveals himself as the, the Almighty God. It's the Hebrew El Shaddai. He's the all-sufficient one. And he says to Abraham in, in, in verse 1, Walk before me blamelessly. Literally, walk in my presence. That's what, that's what he says to him. He's 99, the Lord appears, his first words to him is, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. That's what he says. Abraham was already in covenant with God, and, and now he is being reminded that he has to live in that covenant that God made. I mean, God basically is saying to Abraham, after a really long silence when Abraham went south, brought about by his disobedience, God's been silent because of that, that's, that's inconsistent, Abraham. Your dual allegiance can no longer be tolerated. Walk before me. Walk blameless before me. And God wants us to hear something that he's already said back in Genesis. Uh, Enoch was said to have walked with God. Noah walked with God. And Abraham is to walk in God's presence. And he's to do that blameless. It, it means to... Live a life where every step is taken looking to God. It's, it's daily fellowship. What was broken in the fall? What, what, what do we lack now because uh, of, the, of sin in the Garden of Eden? God fellowshiped with, with Adam and Eve. He walked with them in the cool of the, of the day. Sin broke that, and God will now restore that through, through His covenant. And so, so He reaffirms this promise. The, he reaffirms the promise. Look, if you would, at verse 2. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. I mean, God now reminds Abram of, of the promises that he's made to him in the past, but, but now he, he reveals the extent of his promises. He will not just be Abraham's God, but he'll be his descendants' God as well. And Abraham has already made a covenant, or God has already made a covenant with Abraham, and now he's revealing how far that covenant's going to reach. All kinds of important information in, in this chapter, what it looks like to, to live in covenant with him. His covenant will mean that God's people will live in relationship with him. They'll be in continual fellowship. And you can't separate verses 1 and 2. They have to be taken together. And the Hebrew expresses intention. He, he, he's not saying, walk before me blameless and I am making a covenant with you. He, he's saying, live your life before me with me as your God. That's what covenant living looks like. You're already in covenant with me. Keep in step with the covenant that, that I've made. And it's my intention to bless those people who are in covenant with me. Why do I keep saying the word covenant? Because God does. He only uses that term once back in Genesis chapter 15. When he makes the covenant, he uses it once. And it's used 13 times in chapter 17, accompanied with my. It's my covenant. Abraham responds the only way a human being can in verse 3. Abraham fell on his face. 
And then God reaffirms his promise and expands what Abraham knows about it. Look at verse 4. And God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. He changes his name. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, which includes Gentiles. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. That's all new information. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you through their generations for an everlasting covenant. That's new. And to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. God has told Abraham how... He will bless him before, but he's never revealed it to this extent. The covenant will reach far beyond Abraham. It will extend to generations. It will be an everlasting covenant. Before Abraham was told he would be blessed and he'll have land and seed, and now he's told he's going to be the father of of many nations that kings are going to come from him. Before Abraham was told the, the covenant will be with him, And now he's told it will be with his offspring as well, and it'll be a continual covenant. Before Abraham was told he'll have land that God will show him, he's told the boundaries, but now he's told this this land is an everlasting promise to, to his people. They will always have it. And then in verses 6 through 8, this phrase, I will, is used five times. I will make you fruitful. I will make nations and kings from you. I will establish my covenant from your descendants. I will give you the land for an everlasting possession. I will be your God and and, and their God. And he changes his name from exalted father, which is what Abram means, to Abraham, father of a multitude. And after God tells Abraham how the covenant will apply to his descendants and how he gives him this name that matches his death's destiny... He's made him this father of numerous numerous multitudes. Abraham is reminded that it's all based on God. I mean, notice the words, I have made thee here. I mean, has God made Abraham that way yet? I mean, Abraham hasn't even had Isaac. And even though Abraham couldn't see it, God has already completed his plan. And that's a good good place to, to remind you that You've also been given a new name, even though all the benefits of that name aren't complete yet. You have a new destiny in the Lord. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. You have a new name written down in glory, as we sing. You're no longer called strangers. You're called friends. You're no longer called enemies. You're called sons of God. You're, You're no longer sinners. You're saints. We're called Christians because we imitate our master so clearly that, that we're like little Christs. And look in verse 9, because now Abraham is called to respond. Verse 9. God said to Abraham, Now as for you, notice the shift there, he begins with, As for me, I will, I will, I will. And then he says, Now as for you, Here's your response. Abraham is called to respond. 
Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant and your descendants after you throughout their, their generation. Just like you must respond to the, the offer of the gospel, Abraham is called to respond to, to God's covenant with him. And just to be sure that Abraham doesn't miss the point that it's God's covenant, he says, you shall keep my covenant. God makes it clear over and over and over whose covenant this is, who will maintain these promises. So, so what does God require? What does God require of people in covenant with Him? What is, their, what is their response? Well, look at verse 10. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. This is my covenant. It can't be clearer than that. This is the part. This is not the part that you'll keep. You'll not keep the, the part of, of Genesis 16. 15, I should say, that's my part. You'll circumcise yourself and your descendants. That's your response. Why? Verse 11. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant. Whose covenant? God's covenant. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. It's a symbol representing something. It will represent your submission to my covenant. Our response to God's work is to bear the sign that we're His, to walk before Him blamelessly, to no sacrifices, no repayment, no quid pro quo, no adding to it. Circumcision was already practiced in Abraham's day. This wasn't something new. It, 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 it's something that you did entering into marriage at times, something that you did entering into a clan or a family. But there are three things that are different about the way God uses circumcision here. God gives it a religious significance. It was a sign that God had entered into covenant with Abraham and his people, and the fact that they practiced that, acknowledged that. They, they, they were acknowledging that they are the one true and living God's people. And as they did it, they were submitting to the covenant that, that God had, had made with them. So it was religious. It was also males only. Other circumcision practices weren't gender specific. It could be male or, or female. And God says males only here because of the sin of Adam. And it symbolized the current need, number three, and a future promise. It was to point out the depth of our depravity. I mean, the very act of cutting away your cutting away sin. It, it pictures that. We're sons of Adam. We sinned in him. And from that point, sin was passed on by birth and by practice. And so the point is that sin, that nature, sin nature needs to be removed. And it was passed on. Your sin nature is passed on from parent to child. And there's a need for it to be removed. And only through the covenant that God, God made could, could that be accomplished. And it also pointed to something on the inside was an outward symbol of something that had already happened in, in Abraham. Listen to how Moses states that, that outward symbol and what has to happen on the inside. Deuteronomy 30. It says, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you might live or may live. Listen to Jeremiah 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. Men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, 
or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So is God just concerned about this act happening and not the heart behind it? I mean, is circumcision of the flesh enough? If you doubt it, look at Jeremiah 9.25. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all who are circumcised only in the flesh. Which is exactly what Paul says in Romans 2 when we read it. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, like Abraham. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. And if you doubt all that, you can finally listen to Jesus when he engages the Pharisees. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to him, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. And they're saying, we did the works of Abraham. We're circumcised. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. And he goes on and tells them who their father actually is. It's, it's Satan. God is not requiring the physical act alone. He's requiring an outward act that represents inward submission. I mean, the circumcised life comes from a circumcised heart. A circumcised heart is what God looks upon. It removes our sin through the promise of Christ. So go back to Romans 4. We'll finish this out. What's Paul's question? Verse 10. How then was it credited? How was Abraham's righteousness credited? While he was in a state of circumcision? Or uncircumcised? And here's the irrefutable answer. It's not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. I mean, Abraham was clearly saved before circumcision. If that's not the case, then everything that Paul said up to this point is, is off. So if it's true, and it is true, it was before circumcision, what's circumcision for? Well, that's what Paul answers next. Here's the second reason. Salvation does not involve ceremony. Ceremonies that represent it come after faith. There's a, they're a sign of something possessed, and they're a seal of something enjoyed. Credited righteousness and covenant fellowship. If you would at verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness of faith which he had while uncircumcised. Notice Paul uses two different words here to explain the purpose of ceremonies that God has established. He says they're a sign of something that we already have, and they're a seal of something that we already possess. They're a sign and a seal. Now, don't put too much difference, uh, distance between those two words, because they're just explaining one another. But this verse is vital to understand for even us today, baptism and, and the Lord's Supper, which are the two ordinances that, that, that Christ has given to His church today. 
Those things are signs and seals for us as well. God says Abraham's circumcision outwardly was a sign that he had a circumcised heart, what God had done inwardly. God had cut away the heart of flesh and replaced it with a desire for for faith, a desire for God, a desire to follow God, a desire to walk with Him blamelessly. It It was a picture, it was a symbol of the work that God already done in Him. And it's the same way for us in, in baptism. If you were here last Sunday night, you, you got to see three baptisms and hear testimonies that went along with them. And you're not baptized before you're saved. You're baptized because you're saved. It's a, it's a symbol. It's an outward testimony of, of what's already happened in you. It's an outward symbol of your inward faith. It's a picture of what God has already done in you. And baptism or circumcision is not a means of salvation. There's no grace that comes to us through the water or through the knife in Abraham's case. I mean, when we stand in the waters of baptism, we declare we are followers already of Jesus Christ. We're followers inwardly. We're making an outward statement of that, of, of that truth. And it's our testimony of following Him. We're we declare we're associating with Him, and this is what He's done in me. He's washed me clean. Just like circumcision is a, is a symbol of what God did in, in Abraham inwardly when He circumcised his heart. God told Abraham, this is how you're to respond to my covenant that I made with you. Do this as a sign that you're mine. But Paul also says Abraham's circumcision was a symbol of seal of, of righteousness, of faith, which he had while uncircumcised. The word seal is a confirmation. It's a, it's a confirmation of the, uh, of the righteousness of faith, a confirmation of faith that, that he already possessed. Paul uses this word in 1 Corinthians 9 and 2 Timothy 2, 19. It's a confirmation that Abraham had already believed. And then he's walking before him. He had this inward fellowship with the Lord. And baptism begins that for us, and that Lord's Supper then continues that, that fellowship. The Lord's Supper, when you take the Lord's table, there's no grace or no magic in the wafer or in the, or in, in the juice. It's a continual symbol, a continual reminder that we have faith with one another. We have faith like one another. We, we walk in unity, and we, we walk in fellowship with the Lord. We're His because of what He's done in us. And we remind ourselves of that every time we take the table. I mean, what Paul says here in Romans 4 is a very strong argument against infant baptism. I mean, because Abraham was circumcised after he believed. And his circumcision had nothing to do with his salvation whatsoever. I mean, the argument for paedo baptism is just as circumcision was a sign given to every male child as part of the covenant, uh, baptism is a New Testament sign that should be given to every child in, in a Christian family. But that's reading progressive revelation backwards. I mean, your hermeneutics are turned around the, the, the wrong way. The New Testament advances the promise. God advances the promise of Abraham in, in Christ. And we're not waiting for the promise to come. We're not baptized waiting for the promise to come. The promise has already come. It's Christ. And, and we're now testifying that we've received Christ, that He has come. And, and we're baptized in His name upon our faith. So it's a sign and a seal. It is no part of salvation. It's a sign that you've received it. And God designed it that way 
to show it's always been by faith and that Abraham is our ultimate example. So here's the third reason. Confirmation of Abraham as our spiritual father comes through faith alone. So Abraham could claim Gentiles by faith, and so he could claim Jews who are, who are in faith. Look at verse 11b. Here's the long purpose clause with two aims. He says, So that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. It's like, don't mix up that last point. I'm not saying that he's saving the Gentiles by faith now, and he saved the Jews by circumcision before. It's always been by faith. The circumcision allowed him to be the father of Jews, but specifically the Jews who followed in the footsteps of Abraham's faith, so that he might be the father of all. I mean, Paul says God brought Abraham to faith first, and that credited his faith as righteousness so that God could fulfill a promise. And he believed while uncircumcised. And so he's qualified to be the father of Gentiles, meaning the example of how to be saved. Do you remember what happened at the Jerusalem Council when Gentiles have now been folded into the kingdom? Gentiles are being saved. And I mean, there was, there was a discussion, like, what do we do? What do we command them to do? And, and Paul preached against the Judaizers that said, well, they need to be circumcised. They need to, they need to at least do that. They can't keep all the Mosaic law, but they should at least be circumcised. And Paul says, no. Abraham's faith was credited as righteousness, so, so God could fulfill a promise, and that promise was that he would be the father of many nations. And he believed while uncircumcised, so he could be qualified to be the father of Gentiles. They'll follow in his example. And because he believed and then was also circumcised... He can be the follower of Jewish believers as well. But again, notice he adds something to this second group. But, there's a contrast at the end there, verse 12, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. I mean, most Jews had no problem with faith just as long as ceremony was added to it, the, the law was added to it. Circumcision was added to it. I mean, most Jews saw circumcision as a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. And Paul says, no, it's a sign of the Abrahamic Covenant. And it was given after God made the Abrahamic Covenant. Which is why Paul adds this. So he says, don't mess that up or you're going to mix up salvation. It's, a, it's the sign of Abraham's faith. And that's the sign of your faith as well which is exactly what Jesus was saying in John 8 that I read earlier. Just because you're Jewish by birth or Baptist by birth or you were baptized as a Presbyterian by birth or a Catholic, that doesn't make Abraham your spiritual father. So what does make Abraham your, your spiritual father? What, what's the evidence of that? Listen to John 8, 7. He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. And what does he mean there? Jesus says to 
the Jews that said, Abraham's our father, and he says, no, the devil's your father. How, what, does make, uh, what makes Abraham your father? He who is of God hears the words of God. He's not just saying you, you listen to them, you actually submit to them, you obey them. You do exactly what Abraham did with God's covenant. You obey it, you submit to it, you hear it. Hearing the words of God means obeying, obeying them by faith, submitting to them in heart. And to follow in someone's footsteps means to follow after their example, so they're to follow Abraham's example of faith. And Paul says he's their father in faith, not in Judaism or in anything else. If you don't have the work of God inside you, it doesn't matter what happens on the outside of you. So what must you do to be saved? Well, the same thing Abraham did. That's Paul's whole point. Abraham believed the Lord, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. Do you believe the Lord? Do you believe that you need him to save you from your sin? Do you believe that he is able and he is willing to do what what he promised, like Abraham? Do you believe that if you call upon his name, he'll save you, no matter who you are or what you've done? Remember Abraham's condition. He wasn't a righteous man. Do you believe that Jesus is this very God who who promised that, that to you, that he came not to save the righteous or the circumcised or the baptized, but to save sinners? And that on the cross he gladly paid your debt. And then he rose from the dead to confirm who he was. And do you believe that he'll save you this very day if you'll call out to him? If you believe those things, then that's an evidence that God's already saved you. And the evidence that that's not just some mental assent that you understand these things, the evidence that that that's actually happened in your heart, a circumcised heart, is that you will want to walk before him daily, just like God told Abraham. And you'll want to hear his words, you'll hear them, and you'll want to obey them. And you'll want to give testimony of that in the waters of baptism, and then every month, like at Timberlake, you'll want to take the Lord's table and be reminded of that great grace. Don't try to back into salvation any other way. It's a work that only God can do in the heart. But when he does it in your heart, it comes out on the outside of you and how you live and what you do. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful that salvation is by faith alone and it's not by ceremony. Really, when you think of it, Lord, what a silly thought that some ceremony or ritual that we could perform would somehow change our wicked hearts. It is only by your grace, it's only by the regenerating work of the Spirit, it's only by being born from above, where you give us a new want to, a new desire, that we can be saved. And then we express that that new life in faith and repentance, and then, Lord, that's expressed even further. By every day, we want to follow you. We don't want to follow our old ways, our sin, We want to follow you. And so, Father, we submit to all of that and all of your word, including the way we testify of it. And I am so thankful that you make that plain in your word and that you'll save anyone, even this morning, 
that will call upon your name and believe those things. Help us, Lord, to walk before you blamelessly, be in fellowship even today. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.